0: The following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from John 20, 19-31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, what I want to do this morning is uh, frame up this new series that we're beginning today. We're going to be spending the next 12 weeks studying the Apostles' Creed, now, for some of you, that's all I have to say. You're stoked. You've grown, you might have grown up in a more liturgical tradition where you maybe memorized the creed, but you never really went much deeper than that, so you're excited to dig into it a little bit, find out some of its roots, find out some of the theology, find out what it means. But some of us are saying, what in the world is the Apostles' Creed and why would I want to study it or memorize it? Well, let me just first off tell you that it is not related to Assassin's Creed or Apollo Creed. So if you came this morning thinking of either of those, you're going to be upset. Um, The Apostles' Creed is an ancient summary of the Christian faith. It was also called um, the Rule of Faith. It was called the Roman Creed. In fact, Dr. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says all Christians believe more than is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but none can believe less. It's that important. This creed was used by the early church to teach new disciples the core teachings of Christianity before their baptism. They would say... Do you believe in the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? And they would go down and they'd say, yes, I do. And they would have to affirm their faith. They would have to profess and affirm their faith through the Apostles' Creed before they received baptism. Remember, before Jesus ascended to the Father, he gave the Great Commission to his followers. And this is what he said, quote, Matthew 28, go, Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Listen, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Jesus, in telling people to go make disciples, said, there's a body of teaching. There's a rule of faith. There's a bare minimum of what I've taught that you have to go and carry this on. Teach people this rule of faith. That's This is how this Apostles' Creed, or what was earlier called the Roman Creed, came about. They're trying to create this structure, this foundation of Christian teaching to teach new converts. The Apostles' Creed was meant to be step one in learning the foundations of the Christian faith. It's called the Apostles' Creed because it was the foundation of the Apostles' teaching and discipleship. Okay, the apostles did not write it. They didn't put it together, but it was the the structure of their teaching, the main foundation of their teaching. So it took on the name, the Apostles' Creed. Now we have um, people talking about it as as early as the second century, but we have it in written form. Um, The earliest uh, record we have is from the year 340 AD, which means the Apostles' Creed has been used as a crucial instrument in the discipleship of believers for at least 1,700 years and most likely more. That means when we recite it, we're doing something historical. We are in the same faith as our brothers and sisters who have went before us thousands of years and we're professing the same faith, that our faith isn't something that evolves over time or changes with the seasons that our world and our culture goes in. It's something that we're deeply rooted in history. Now, some of you are suspicious of creeds. You might say something like, I have no creed but the Bible. Well, first, let me say that no creed but the Bible is itself a creed that's not in the Bible. So there's that. But secondly, the purpose of the apostles' creed was not to supplant scripture, but to corroborate the scriptures and to protect the church from the infiltration of heretics. So usually these creeds pop up when heresy pops up. So you get a false teacher teaching false things. One of the thing is the Arian heresy. I'm not gonna get into this too much, but teaching that Jesus was just a man. And so the church has to formulate a creed from Scripture to counteract that heresy that's being taught. Same with the Apostles' Creed. <clears throat> the creed that we study and that we're going to hopefully memorize has no real authority in itself. Rather, the authority of the creed is derived from the authority of Scripture. So each week, we're not just going to preach uh, a line from the Apostles' Creed, but we're going to exegete one body of text, one scripture, one section of scripture to show how the creed is taken from the scriptures. <clears throat> so, the purpose of the creed was to give Christians a foundation of Christian belief, what C.S. Lewis would ca- come later to call mere Christianity. And it was also created to co- correct and confront false beliefs and false teachers who are in error. So that's what the creed is. That's why it was written. What do I hope our church gets out of this study over the next 12 weeks? First, as Alex already said, we are here to be disciples of Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus. We can't be a disciple of Jesus without knowing the foundations of our faith nor can we pass on Jesus's teaching without first knowing it ourselves. So the Apostles' Creed really is a great summary of the Christian faith for us, for us to memorize, and for us to teach those who we are discipling. So parents, it is good for you to memorize the Apostles' Creed, and then to teach that to your children. In America, kind of we kind of think what, if I asked you, what's the bare minimum you need to know to be a follower of Jesus? Unfortunately, most of you are going to say, Jesus died for my sins, right? Historically, in the history of the church, that's never been true. You need more than just Jesus died for my sins, right? We need to know where did Jesus come from? Is Jesus all there is to God? No, there's actually a father. There's actually a spirit. There's other things. Why do we need to be forgiven? There's other things that we need to teach our children. There's other things that we need to know to be Christians. So it's important for us to be a disciple and to make disciples. Secondly, there is a weird fury at work in our world. It feels like some kind of, oceanic tide that pulls us out into its deeps without us even realizing we are drifting from the shore. You know what I mean? If you've ever been swimming on the beach as a kid and you're having fun and then you look up and you realize there's a million people but mom's not one of them. Right? And you're looking for the the you know, the pink hotel that you stayed at and you realize, "Oh, it's way down there. I've been drifting." Well, something like that is going on in our world right now, and it seems that everything in our society is at work, consciously or unconsciously, to get us to think about and focus on only the things that our society deems important. You could call these issues the hot-button issues of our day. Social justice, Race, immigration, LGBTQ, and our own personal success. That's what our culture's interested. And every media outlet, whether right-wing or left-wing, all marketers, everything that's going on in our world wants us to think about those issues all the time. Now, I am not saying that any of those issues is unimportant. You know, if you've been around here for a while, that they're all important. We've done series on them. We, We speak about them. The Bible addresses them all in its own way. But here it is. A great problem arises for the church of Jesus Christ when they take their marching orders from the world, when they only preach on or study things that the world tells them is important. When we only focus on the issues our culture finds pertinent and important, when that happens, the church gets twisted. Our theology gets twisted. Our philosophy gets twisted. Our thinking gets twisted. And we run the risk of having huge blind spots in what we believe if you look back in history and you say, how could people believe, how could people claim Christianity and yet be racist and own slaves? They had blind spots, blind spots. How could the church in Germany in the 40s actually affirm Hitler and say, we need a strong leader. Hitler's a strong leader. Let's, let's side with Hitler on this thing. They had nationalistic blind spots. C.S. Lewis has famously written about this, and he says this quote. I've got the quote up here, I think. Every age has its own outlook. It is specially good at seeing certain truths and specially liable to make certain mistakes. We all, therefore, need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period, and that means the old books. Now, here's what C.S. Lewis recommended. He, said he loved all kind of books. He was a scholar, and he said this, but here's the deal. Read a current book, and when you're done with the current book, read a dead person. Read an old book. Why? Because the, every generation, every age, has its own mistakes. The problem, if you're only reading current Current books is they're all making the same mistakes and they don't even know it. But when you go back and you read the old books, you can clearly see their mistakes. And this is what he says. Lewis recommended reading an old book between every new book. And he said this, this is what it does. Quote, it keeps the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. Well, that is another reason we're studying the Apostles' Creed. We want the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. We might just find that our Christian brothers and sisters from centuries past have a thing or two to teach us today. So without further ado, we're gonna jump into our study in the Apostles' Creed. And you know how I like to start things off. I like to bite off more than I can choose. So today we're taking two words, I believe. That's what we're doing. These words are actually repeated three times in the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, here's something else that's a little interesting. If you've ever heard of catechism, we catechize our children at at the church. Catechism is, again, the kind of the bare bones, the bare necessities of the Christian faith that all Christians should know. Every catechism is made up of an amalgamation of three things. One, the Ten Commandments, teachings on the Ten Commandments. Two, teaching on the Lord's Prayer. And three, the Apostles' Creed. Now, I want our church to be well-fed. I want us to have a well-balanced diet in the Word of God. And so I don't know if you've noticed this, but in some of the topical series over the past couple years, we preached through the Ten Commandments. Last summer, or last, about this time last year, we preached through the Lord's Prayer. And now this year, we're preaching through the Apostles' Creed. Now what's interesting, if you remember, the Lord's Prayer said, it began like this, Our Father... It was a communal prayer meant to be prayed by the church. The church together is praying this thing. Well, the Apostles' Creed doesn't begin with our, it begins with I. It does begin in a little more individualistic fashion. We might like that here in America. It begins with me. What do I believe? What's true for me? How have I responded to the person and work of Jesus Christ? Now, this is where I'm going to begin this morning. What does it actually mean to believe? We live in strange times. I remember when I was a youth pastor, man, I'm getting old when I'm saying these things. Back in my day, I remember. But I do. My kids would say this to me. My kids would say, "Why could in an honest confession, why couldn't have Jesus come today?" Why was he born 2,000 years ago when we didn't have video cameras? Why couldn't he have been born today so that anytime we doubted, all we had to do was put in the DVD and we could see him. There he is. He really said it. He really lived. He really existed. He really died. He really was resurrected. He really ascended to the Father. Video evidence would be wonderful to our faith. Never would I have guessed that a mere ten. 15 years later, nearly all video evidence could be utterly dismissed as doctored, fake, or created through computer generation. I recently had a man come to faith in our church. When it came time for him to be baptized, we don't just baptize anybody that just says, yeah, we, we want to we make sure that they understand the gospel. And so we started going through the core tenets of our faith. When he interrupted me, and and, and seminary doesn't prepare you for these kind of interruptions, okay? He interrupted me and he told me that he believed that the earth was flat. Now, I'm trying to reach back in my mind to to find a quote back here, but there was nothing. I had nothing to give him. I told them that, okay, well, you know what? Your beliefs on the shape of the earth were not a core issue to Christianity, right? So it wouldn't prevent me from baptizing him, right? <laughs> it's, some of the stuff, guys, it's just weird. But I'm like, okay, all right. But then he proceeds to... Kind of proselytize me, he begins to pre- tells me all about the video, all the videos that he's watched, everything on Netflix that confirms his theory, anything I tried to bring up, he had a rebuttal for, all video of the Earth, because there's like satellites that take pictures like every second that you can go and watch video of the Earth as it turns, And, and all of that was fake. We've never been to the Moon. I went to Neil Armstrong Elementary. I felt completely robbed of my childhood. (laughs) And of course, everyone in the government was in on the conspiracy. I said, but I've been in a plane and I've seen the curvature of the earth. No, 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 the windshields. The windshields are manufactured to make it look like that. I'm going, oh, I'm in deep here and I don't know how to get out. (laughs) And in the end, I just, man, listen, stop. You're not going to convince me of any of this? Sounds a little crazy, but this doesn't have anything to do with, did Jesus come? Did Jesus die? Did Jesus rise? Have you believed in him? Has he forgiven you of your sins? Are you ready to be baptized? Oh, yeah, Oh yeah, Yeah. I believe all that. Okay, then stop with the flat earth stuff. Just come on Sunday and I'll baptize you. I pray when you come up, you'll believe something different about the shape of the earth too. But in the end, he chose Listen, he's, he calls me. I'm not going to be there in the morning. I'm going to look for another church who shares the same beliefs as I. Beliefs in what? I have never seen first church of the flat earth out here. <laughs> Believe all kinds of things, and strangely, our beliefs in all different kinds of things they kind of level the playing field. His belief in a flat earth was somehow equal to his belief that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. People believe in aliens. People, million people were about to storm Area 51 last week. People believe in the Illuminati. People believe that Elvis and Tupac are still alive. And then in the midst of all of this, Christians say, I believe in God the Father. So what does it mean to believe in something? I think we are amiss on our interpretation and our understanding, our definition of the word belief. Let me first begin by this. There's two, at least two aspects, to faith or to Belief. One, faith and belief is assent to a certain truth. Assent. Yes, I intellectually believe that is true. It is agreeing to certain things intellectually. For us, I believe there is a God, I believe Jesus was a historical, real person. There's a fact there. I believe that Jesus died on a Roman cross in between two thieves. I believe that a person can be forgiven of their sins if they believe the good news of the gospel, that Jesus wasn't going to the cross because of his own sins. He was going to the cross as a spotless lamb to pay the price for the sins of the world. I believe the scriptures are true and accurate. But faith, real biblical faith is much more than that. It isn't less than that. You have to know certain historical facts. You have to know about the real Jesus. You can't just... You know, have some name of Jesus and have some angelic creature in your mind when you say the name of Jesus. You need to know who is the real Jesus. There's got to be real substance. And you have to assent to certain things being true about him. Think about this. Actually, you can... All those things that are written up there. We may read them and go, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I believe those things. I believe those things. What's interesting, James... Two nineteen says James says this in, in, in chapter 2, verse 19. He says, God is one. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Demons might have better theology. No, demons have better, than theo- better theology than all of us. They can assent to the truth. Everything up there, they know with their eyes. They've seen it. They saw Jesus crucified. They can affirm it. They can say, yes, he died for the sins of the world. Yes, God the Father. Yes, God the Son. Yes, God the Holy Spirit. Demons can assent to that truth, and yet they don't submit to that truth. They don't love that truth. They don't trust that truth. So that's the second aspect of faith. Faith is meant to be a personal, individual trust, it is a throwing of the whole person onto God Himself. The whole person. You can talk about the soul. You can talk about our head, how we think things intellectually. You can talk about our heart and how we feel things emotionally. And you can talk about our hands, our will, our chooser, our, the power that we have in us for self-determination. Head, heart, and hands. If it's going to be biblical faith, all of our person has to be involved. Not like the demons who can just mentally assent to certain things to be true. We actually have to throw ourselves on those truths and trust them. Without all three of these aspects, you don't have biblical faith. That's why James goes on. James says in 2.17, faith without works is dead. That means... Faith involves the will. Your willpower works. You, act, you can't just say, yeah, 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 I believe it to be true. Faith says, I believe it to be true, and now I'm walking out the door. I'm going to live like it's true. Mental assent to certain truths is not enough. Think of it like this. Think of a rope swing. If you've ever been on a rope swing that went out over water, Right, You could stand there, and if you've ever found this thing in the woods, great discovery of kids, right? You're in the woods tromping around, and you find a rope swing over water. This is like gold mine, right? But you also are looking up at this rope and being like, how long has this thing been here? It's a little frayed, right? This is why you have little brothers. You go, go ahead and try it, bud. looks fine, (laughs) Right? But listen, you could say, do you believe that rope will hold you? Yes, I believe that rope will hold you. I believe that rope will hold you. But you don't have biblical faith in that rope until you grab a hold of it and your feet leave the ground. When your feet leave the ground, you believe that this thing will hold you. You're showing by your body that you have faith in this rope. Are you, I think it'll hold. Like, I got a little bit of faith if my brother's involved. Go ahead, buddy. You're a little bit bigger than me anyways. Go ahead, swing on that thing. I got a little bit of faith. Faith enough for him, not faith enough for me, right? But I've got biblical faith when I pull my feet up and I put my whole self and I trust my life or whatever to this rope, right? That's biblical faith. There's a huge difference between believing that Jesus can forgive sins and believing that Jesus has forgiven my sins. One is intellectual. It's philosophical. It's theoretical. The other is personal, experiential, vital. It's been my experience that there are many people who think they're saved, They think they're Christians because they they assent to, to certain doctrines or certain truths and yet they have no vitality of God in their soul. They have no communion. They don't know how to enjoy the glory of God. They don't have a warmth in his presence. They have no desire to please him and to follow him and they don't want him to be Lord over their life. They're confused. They're not Christians yet and we have a biblical example of this in our text this morning in John chapter 20 this is a famous text Thomas gets his famous well he's got a double nickname because in the text he's called the twin but we all now call him doubting, doubting Thomas, doubting Thomas. If we get to heaven we're gonna be like what's up doubting I'm not doubting Thomas it was one moment in my life <laughs> that's how you get nicknames bro Verse 19. Now here's the chapter 20, verse 19 of John's gospel. Here's the background. Jesus told his disciples several times that he was going to be killed and he was going to rise again. But here's the deal. They could not absorb that information. Every time they're like, uh-huh, okay, okay, okay. Like your kids, right? If you ever see your kids, you're looking at me, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Repeat what I said to you. Because in five minutes, you're going to tell me I never told you what I just told you. That was, how, that was the disciples. Yeah, yeah, die, die, rise again. Mm, I don't get it. Well, I'm willing to go with you. That's what, that's what Thomas said earlier in the Gospel of John. If you're going, I'm going. Let's do this. And then here it happens. Jesus dies. He's crucified. And he's resurrected. And now the disciples couldn't kind of get their minds around it. See, the Christ, the chosen one, the Messiah in their minds could not be killed and there was going to be one resurrection and that is at the end of the age when Christ would finally establish his kingdom and renew all the world. Now, if you would have walked up to these disciples on the street and you would have asked them, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? They would have all said, yes, absolutely. I believe in it. They assented to that truth. But when Jesus was crucified before their very eyes, most of them fell away, even Peter. And here in John 20, we get to see one of those apostles struggle with his doubt, struggle with his cynicism, wrestle with his doubt. And if you've ever been a a Christian who's wrestled with doubt, or maybe you're not a Christian and you're here and you're wrestling with the truths of Christianity, listen, Every Christian does not find everything in the Bible easy to believe. We did not wake up one, mo- one morning and just, boom, now we believe all the right things. Faith and belief sometimes feels like a wrestling match, right? And you're going to see that here. And so this is a good place to be. I'm glad you're here if you're a cynic or if you're a doubter or if you're, you're just kind of testing things out. I'm glad you're here so you can hear the truth for yourself and you can wrestle with your doubts here. Let's jump into our text this morning, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Okay, their leader has just been crucified by the Romans, right? It was legal to kill Jesus, and now all of Jesus' followers are like, lock the door because they're coming for us. Right? They took our leader. Now they're coming for us. So they're locked behind closed doors. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, shows up. First thing he says, Peace be with you. Chill out. Right? That's what he would say to all of us if he showed up in this room in a physical body. Right? We would freak out and he would say, Peace be still. Right? Listen. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The resurrected Jesus still had scars. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, right? Everything we believed wasn't a lie. He did come back. He is real. He's here. This is amazing. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So this is kind of another commission. You guys are going to be my missionaries. Go. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Here we go. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, there's nickname number one, was not with them when Jesus came. Okay? Okay? Now, he was at the grocery store. He gets back. They're like, you won't believe it. Guess who showed up? Romans, centurions? I don't know who. You're still alive. I don't know. Jesus. Right? He's looking around the corner, you know, looking for cameras, seeing if he's punked right now. What's going on? Like, G- Jesus? Jesus showed up? Now he's like, I don't really know if I've ever belonged to these people. Have they ever been my people? Jesus, the guy that we just saw go into the tomb, Jesus, the guy we just saw hang on a cross and get nailed and asphyxiate and fall down and say, it is finished and everything happened, that Jesus showed up to you? (gasps) I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night, guys, right? And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and I place my hand into his side where the spear went and they saw blood and water flow out, I will never believe Now, that is quite the statement. Thomas has his own evidence that he's looking for. His apostles, the people that he's lived the last three years with, that he's walked with, that he's learned from, that they've made disciples together. These people said Jesus was here. We saw it. He says, I don't believe it until I see it. So in this moment, Thomas doubts the truth. He doubts reality. Jesus really did show up and he was really there, but he doesn't believe it. He doubts reality and he puts his faith in his own standard. He says, no, 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 I don't believe what you say. I don't believe your testimony. I have to see it for myself. He says I will never believe until I do. Eyewitness testimony is not enough for him. He needs more evidence. Now I hear I've heard this objection often. If God is real, then he will dot dot dot. If God is real, he will save my marriage. If God is real, he will show up to me and perform said miracle that I need to overcome my belief or overcome my unbelief. If God is real, he will heal my child. If God is real, he will. And just literally fill in the blank. Maybe everyone in this room has said that at one time or another. Famous atheist has said, what do you, what are you going to do if you get to the afterlife and you stand before the judgment of God and he's real and he exists? I will look at him and say, not enough evidence. Now, in an interesting way, we, we can read this and we can kind of side with Thomas. And we can kind of go, yeah, that, that's just really hard to believe. It's really hard to believe. But Thomas saw Jesus walk on water. Thomas saw Jesus multiply fish and loaves. Thomas saw Jesus heal the sick. Thomas saw Jesus do all kinds of miracles, and yet he's still, here it is, obstinate. He draws a line in his own soul's sand and says, I will not believe until God, you do this for me. That is not a humble position. That is not the position a a creature should take before its creator. A creature should look for all possible evidence to believe in the creator. They should not say, I've drawn a a line in the sand, and this is the only evidence that I'll believe. First person, eyewitness, testimony, my own, I want to see it. So what we need to see right here is Thomas is making a choice to put his faith in something other than Christ. He's not just kind of like wishy-water, wishy-washy doubting Thomas. No, no, no. He has solid faith in what his eyes can see. He's doubting Christ and trusting his own perceived abilities to recognize truth when it's before him. And we need to remember God owes no man anything. God does not, he's not wringing his hands in the heavens over all of our little, every time we draw a line in the sand and going, oh, they're not gonna, they're not gonna believe in me if I don't perform this miracle for them. No. But for Thomas' sake and for our own, as we're reading the text this morning, Jesus, in his great humility, obliges him his request. Let's keep reading. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said again, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Look, 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 look. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He doesn't say don't doubt. He says don't disbelieve. You've you've had faith in something other than me. Transfer your faith from your doubts to me right now. Isn't it strange that when we're doubting, we never doubt our doubts? We only doubt our faith. Why? Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe. What's he saying? Now, this is interesting. Some of us in the the Christian tradition, we can think that because faith is a gift from the Holy Spirit and a gift from Jesus, it comes from God, that therefore all we need to do is just be passive and just wait for it to show up. Waiting for faith Hoping That's not what Jesus says Jesus says Don't disbelieve, believe He's he's saying That will you've got inside of you Use it Choose to believe me And doubt your doubts That's what Jesus is saying Make the choice Thomas Use your faith And look what Thomas does Thomas answered him my Lord and my God. Now, I think this is where Thomas comes to faith. This is Thomas becoming a Christian. Thomas knew about the forgiveness of sins. Thomas knew about the Christ. Thomas knew about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He knew that, and he could assent to some of those certain truths. But in this moment, the Savior of the world became my Lord and my God, something personal, experiential, vital in his soul, changed. He expressed his faith. He used his faith. His faith reached out and grasped Christ, and he put his whole weight and trust on Christ. Can I ask you this morning, have you done that? Or are you still like Thomas? Thomas? Waiting on more evidence. Or maybe you believe in Jesus intellectually, you've been taught it since you came out of your mother's womb. You had Christian parents and they taught you the truths, and maybe you've memorized this and you've been catechized and you've got all the right doctrinal answers in your mind, and yet you have no warmth in your soul. Have you ever put the full weight of your personal trust on Him? Not just the Savior, he's my Savior. Not just the King of Kings, he's my King of Kings. This is why we have this written testimony. Look at verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe, so that you, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and look, and by believing, you may have life in his name. It's not about just, yes, Jesus existed, yes, Jesus died, yes, you can be forgiven. These are written, these eyewitness testimonies, so that we could believe in his name and we could have life in his name. That God desires to give you his life, literally, to infuse you? Christ wants to come into you. He wants to be yours and come into you and bring the reality of God into your own soul. Have you experienced that? Now, if you've been in church a long time and you've never had that, you might be getting nervous. Well, listen, if you, if you study the conversion. Of many quote unquote heroes of our faith. One of the things that happens so often is a person is in the church, they say they believe the truth, they assent to the truth, and then somehow in their story they realize they weren't converted. It happened to Martin Luther, it happened to w- George Whitfield, it happened to hundreds of people, and it happened to John Wesley as well. Listen to this, John Wesley came over to the United States of America and was preaching revivals and he was, he was a missionary to the United States. And then on the way back, his boat was getting capsized. All kind of stuff was happening to his boat and he was getting freaked out and he saw the people that were rowing the boats, they were not worried at all. And they were praying to God and they had faith and he was anxious and overwhelmed and didn't, and he realized they, the crewmen, have something that I don't have. They are, have a level to their faith that I don't have because their faith is giving them a peace. And my faith, I'm still anxious about what's going to happen if I get thrown overboard. He gets back and he goes to basically his missional community. They called it a society meeting. He goes to his missional community. And listen, this is his own, from his own writing in his journal. I want you to put it up there. On May 24th, 1738, I went very unwillingly. Oh, hold, hold on. Anybody ever been there? <laughs> CMC. No! Oh! Right? I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. I bet you all would be excited about that one. About a quarter before nine, while he was thus describing the changes that God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine and saved me from the law of sin and death. A preacher of the gospel, a missionary going overseas, preaching the gospel to others, goes to a missional community meeting. They're reading Luther's preface to the book of Romans, and he gets converted. What he knew, what he assented to, became living and vital, and he trusted in it, and now he knows not just people's sins are forgiven, not just the world's sins are forgiven, my sins are forgiven, and his heart is strangely warmed. Listen, it is not enough to know that Jesus can forgive us of our sins. It is not enough to know that we can be made right with God and we can have fellowship with the Father through the Holy Spirit because of the work of Jesus. You can know those things and still not be forgiven of your sins or have fellowship with God. Ask any doctor. A good many prescriptions still go unfulfilled. You can know you're sick You can know what medicine will help you, but if you don't take it, you'll never get its benefits. The same is true of Christ. It's not just about knowing. It's about taking Christ by faith. It requires belief. It requires active trust that I'm gonna rest my full soul on Christ and I'm not gonna trust my own works for my salvation. Now, if you find yourself weak in faith this morning, no worries. Say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And come to the table and take Christ. Take Christ this morning and trust his promises that everything true of him is now true of you because you're united to him. All your sins, paid for. All your righteousness, spotless. Not because of your obedience, because of his. Believe that this morning. Jesus, I thank you. What good, glorious news. I thank you for the gift of faith. And I also thank you for calling forth the, the gift that you've given us. You give us faith, and it's your faith. And then when we possess it, and we own it, and we actualize it, and we use it, it becomes our faith. Would you help us believe this morning? Help us doubt our doubts and believe you. And the night that you were betrayed, you took. The bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body that's broken for you. And you took the cup and you said, this is my blood that's been shed for the remission of sins. And we're told that as often as we come together to eat this and to drink this, and that we would proclaim your death until you come again. And so we eat in faith today. We eat in faith knowing you've forgiven our sins and you're coming again to restore this world. We say, come, Lord Jesus, and come quickly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.